Good morning, everyone. I invite you to take out your copy of God's Word and open with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 12. Thank you, Phil, for leading us in song this morning and for uh, introducing us to a new song this morning as well. I think we'll all profit from uh, hearing that song again in the future soon and uh, reflecting on its truths. Well, this morning... We are going to be looking at a passage of Scripture, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And I think it's an appropriate text for us for several reasons. One is we're coming out of the the Christmas season, and we've been reflecting upon, as we've come to the, the time of the advent of Christ, we've been reflecting on the reasons for His coming. And this passage, perhaps more than any other, gives us an understanding of why it is that uh, Jesus came. Furthermore, this passage is going to be helpful, I believe, uh, because it does follow uh, the same passage that we've been studying with Pastor Brandon in Ephesians chapter 2. And so I'm going to read this uh, with you, but before I begin, I'd like to ask you to consider several questions as we consider this text. Again, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 26. Here are the questions. First, why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he have to die? And finally, what has his death accomplished? I believe this passage is going to help us to answer all three of these questions. And truly, each of these is fundamental for us to clearly not only understand, but be able to articulate in order to be able to present our knowledge of Christ and share the gospel with others. So let's look at this together now, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's with considerable joy that we come to a passage like this. We are aware that we are standing on ground which is holy. This passage is the introduction of you, you, your will, into the long, sad story of man's sin. This is your solution. 
This is how you have chosen to deal with our sin. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see this text all anew. Pray that you'd give us hearts that would be inclined to long to understand these precious truths. We ask, God, that you would give your spirit to grant utterance to the speaker and ears that would hear for those who hear this word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this text is begun with these two profound small words, but now presented at the beginning of this, and we could almost just read past them and consider them maybe just a transition in the logic of the flow and the argument that Paul has been presenting in the book of Romans. But I believe there is so much more taking place here. You see, the book of Romans is a systematic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul has been dealing with the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for there is no distinction. The gospel is effectual to the Jew first, but it is also possible for the Gentile to be saved. And so he has been taking a long, lengthy presentation from essentially Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down to uh, chapter 3, verse 20, to explain the condition of man without God. And what we see as we read through that is that it's an abysmal situation that man is in. Whether it's with the law or without the law, man is utterly without hope. But now, God presents this truth. But now, God intervenes. But now, God begins to explain to us what He has planned from before the beginning of time. You see, from the day that Adam fell until the presentation of Christ and His crucifixion, God has been progressively through the Scriptures unveiling and unfurling this truth. This is the pinnacle of salvation history. This but now is the ultimate presentation and it should take our breath away as we see how God intervenes and interjects and interrupts us on the road and the path to hell. You see, in all of our sin, we were merely bystanders and participants. We were longing for, hoping for some salvation. Men have been constantly looking for a Savior. They have been looking for some means of getting to God. You know, before I came to faith in Christ, I did an extensive research into the different religions of the world because I became convinced that I needed to be saved. But I was one of those up, uh, you know, college students who was very sure of himself and said, I'm not just going to sell out and be a Christian because that's what everyone else does. I'm going to research all these other claims of the different religions in the world. And I'll tell you, after about six months, which probably is not a very lengthy time, but it was sufficient for me, after six months of looking, I'll tell you what I discovered. Christianity, unlike every other world religion, is distinct in this one element. And this is the one thing 
that distinguishes Christianity from every other man-made and demonic religion in the world. And you know what it is? Salvation is of the Lord. It's His idea. We may think we want it. We may think we need it. But the salvation that God presents is so much of Him that He ensures that we can do absolutely nothing to get it, to earn it, or to keep it. Salvation is entirely His idea. It's all of Him and He alone. Jealousy guards His glory to ensure that He gets all of the praise for salvation. And so we come to this but now and we begin to see the interjection of God as He intervenes and manifests to us His righteousness and His glory. And this is in comparison to the filthiness of our sin. And so for us today as we come to this passage, if you have an outline uh, in your bulletin, you'll notice that Paul is asking us to behold the righteousness of God demonstrated through first the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and secondly through the forbearance of God the Father. Look with me again at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. I'd ask you to go back to chapter 1 just so that you can pick up the flow of where Paul is. You see, beginning in chapter 1, And in verse 16 and 17, Paul lays out for us essentially the thesis or the argument that's going to be the driver of the entire gospel he is presenting here. And so in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then, as we already mentioned, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, he begins to go through this long parenthetical presentation that is essentially placed there so that we would understand why we need this gospel. You see, we need to be made aware of how desperately sick we truly are, how desperately lost we are, and how deep the darkness is that we have found ourselves. In every effort of our own ability, in every effort that we have made to try to be righteous or holy, in every way that we have tried to go the right way, all we have merited was nothing in the eyes of God, and all that we have actually done is dig our own grave. But now God has intervened. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the demonstration of God's righteousness. And we see these two are the driving themes of the entire letter of Romans. The power of God through salvation. The demonstration of God's righteousness in this Gospel. And so Paul wants us to join with him in 
absolute awe and astonishment at what God has accomplished. And so turn back to chapter 3. And look at this now that we have experienced in God. Apart from the law, the the righteousness of God has been manifested. And we have to ask now, why does Paul say this? It, It begs the question, what is the purpose of the law if God had to bring a solution apart from the law or outside of the law? Well, we, we, what we see, as we've already said, is that he is signifying a new era in salvation history. And if you look just back at chapter 3, you'll see just a few of the things that the law and the prophets have to say regarding the condition of man. Starting in verse 10, it says, There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There is not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For the law comes, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so what we understand is, whereas those without the law have a conscience that's sufficient to condemn them, they can't be saved without the law. And those who have the clarity of what the gospel or what the law presents cannot have any hope of salvation because all the law can do is increase the sinfulness of sin and make them accountable because they have a knowledge of its requirements. So then we have to ask, what is the purpose of the law? You see, this is the very stumbling block that Jesus was dealing with when he had to deal with the scribes and the Pharisees in his era, in his day. You see, they had put upon the law the thought that if we perfectly keep it, we will be right before God. We will be pleasing in His sight. The reality is, is that that is not what the law was ever intended to do. There was never any hope of salvation through the law. As we see at the very end of chapter 3, excuse me, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what then is the value and purpose of the law? Well, put simply, the law is given to condemn. The law is given to clarify our guilt. The, The law is given so that we would see we cannot please God. And so then, what does Paul mean when he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested? What is he saying here? What he's saying is this. The righteousness of God has been demonstrated through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. 
The law came in to kill. The law came in to condemn. The purpose of the law was to illuminate how dark it really was, how dark it really is, and to enliven in those hopeless sinners who saw the glory of the law that they would then hope as they should have hoped for a Savior. And so what the law has done is bring illumination to point the way to Christ. And so now the righteousness of God is demonstrated for us through the faithfulness of Christ. Christ lived the life we are all required to. He perfectly upheld the law. And then for our sakes, He laid down His life so that we would gain all of His merit. So this is why the law and the prophets bear witness. All the law and the prophets were doing was saying, yes, the law is accurate. God is right. It is true. All the prophets were doing was holding Israel accountable. Why aren't you holding the law? Why aren't you keeping the law? The people said, we can't do it. We need to worship Molech more heartily. We need to worship the gods of the Canaanites more fervently. Perhaps those gods will give us what we long for, which is a sense of freedom from sin. But really, all that could happen was sin abounded. And God judged them for the rejection of the law. The law was given, as we know Galatians 3.24 tells us, the law was given to be a tutor, a teacher, a leader, so that we would be justified, not by works, but by faith. We know that every effort that we do in our own strength, we may keep the law to some degree, but in our heart, as Jesus made explicit in the Sermon on the Mount, we are still transgressors of the law. We may look like pretty whitewashed tombs, but we're still full of dead man's bones. We may look good on the outside, but we are uh, law-breaking Pharisees. We are utter hypocrites who are still in desperate need of Christ. And so for these reasons, the law failed. But no, it didn't. It seemed to fail. The law absolutely succeeded. First, because it did what it was supposed to do. It condemned. But secondly, because Christ fully fulfilled it. He yielded himself to it. So this goes back to that first question we asked. Well, why did Jesus have to come? This is why He came. That's why we just got done celebrating the advent of Christ this Christmas. We had a reading even. Jesus didn't just come to be born and laid in a manger. He came to be a Savior. He was born to die for our sake. Jesus came to establish the law of God, and He did this through the faithfulness of His life through the faithfulness of his yielding to the plan of God to the point of shedding his own blood. And God has seen that blood and was satisfied and raised him up for our justification. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no life to come. We are still sinners. We are still in our trespasses. And there is no hope. Because Jesus was faithful, God raised him. And because he is risen, we will rise indeed with him if we put our faith in him. 
Now, if you look at verse 22, I want to point out to you just a little variation in the text that I think would be helpful for us in the context. In the NASB, it says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. I think that the problem with this text is that it doesn't help us with the context as well. And the Net Bible gives us a little bit better understanding, and it says it this way. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. I don't know if you noticed the difference, but in the NASB, the faith is our faith in Christ. Whereas the Net Bible translates this as the faithfulness of Christ for those who believe. Now the reason that this translation has a, a, ver- a variation is because there is some disagreement among scholars as to who is getting, uh, who is the one that's having the faith. Is it Christ or is it us? And not to get too technical, uh, but I did speak to our, our uh, in-house Greek scholar uh, to make sure that I wasn't going off into deep waters. Uh, this is uh, a, a passage, or this, this, these two words, pistis Christo, are following a subjective genitive, which essentially means that either that, that it's more likely that this is speaking out of our faith, but of Christ's faith. If this was an objective genitive, it would be our faith. But because it's a subjective genitive, it, it means that it belongs to Christ. And so for that reason, when you read through the King James or you read through uh, an older translation, the Geneva Bible, you'll notice that it actually translates uh, this as the faith of Christ. And so you can see that they are dealing with this same issue textually. And uh, what we can understand is that faithfulness makes a whole lot more sense. And so all that said, let me put it this way. Who upholds God's righteousness? My faith or Christ's faithfulness? I think that Christ's faithfulness is a little bit uh, a better one to stand on for me. So I'm standing there today. Jesus is the one who's been faithful. He willingly came and tabernacled among us. He willingly laid down His rights and fully submitted to the law of God, even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus was the one who was tested in all ways and was not found lacking. Jesus is the one who was without sin. Jesus is the one alone who upholds the law. Jesus is the one alone who upholds the law. Jesus is the one who has been faithful. And because of His faithfulness, those who believe live. But now look back at the end of verse 22. We see here what I, what I'd consider if you, if you wanted to put a parenthesis around it, we'd call it a, a parenthesis. Paul essentially has begun an argument about the faithfulness of Christ, but he wants to take a moment to step back and just remind us not only how wicked we are still, but also to give us two things at the same time. One, an awareness of how sinful we are, and secondly, how desperately 
We need the salvation that God gives us. And I believe the motivation is that we would be humble as we consider the gift that God has given us through the faithfulness of Christ. So with that said, look at verse 22 at the very end. It says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this again harkens back to where we began at the beginning of Romans in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says that the gospel is for everyone. It's for all. To the Jew first, because they received the law and the promises, but also to the Gentile, because that's the entire reason why God saved Israel to begin with. He saved them in order to set them as a people. They were holy to be set apart and to lead the nations to God. This was the promise that God had made to Abraham. And if you keep reading in Romans, you'll see in chapter 4, it's fulfilled. Jesus is that fulfillment. However, right here, what Paul is focusing on is not only the universal aspect of salvation, but the universal condemnation of all sinners. And so we look back again and we see this, all have sinned. Well, who is the all? The all here indicates in a, a tense which is essentially saying it's a, a sin which was once and for all and is continual. And so who is the one who sinned so that we are all now condemned sinners? Well, obviously it's Adam. For this reason, in Romans 5.12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, we see that sin entered through Adam, but we are just as guilty because we are born sinners, but we continue to sin. What I find interesting is that this word falling short may not be what you think it means. I know when I'm reading through it, I'm, I, I see, yes, uh, well, sin, that means to miss the mark, fall short. Yeah, I, I, I fall short of God's holy mark. But that's actually not exactly what is meant here. Uh, what this is speaking of is it's essentially the same word in Greek that Jesus used in the parable of the prodigal son to describe that rebellious son who was feeding the pigs and looked down and he hungered. He looked down and saw what they had and he wanted what they had. And what did it do? That hungering caused him too long to return to his father's house. This is the nature of falling short. It's that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but yet at the same time, we are longing for something to fill, as C.S. Lewis put it, that God-shaped hole in our hearts. The eyes of man's flesh is never satisfied, just as our, our yearning for the things that this world has to offer is never satisfied. We're continually going to find something to fill that emptiness. We're looking for something to satisfy us. And this is why there are so many different religions. This is why there are so many different remedies that men can go to to silence and to dull the pain of this essence, this essence of hunger, of falling short. But there is no solution for this desperate desire that all men are born with outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in every effort that you may extend in order to silence the awareness that you have to dull the pain of this hungering, the world will never satisfy you and the sin that you are craving will never fill you. 
And so leaving this sidebar now with a little bit more, I hope, humility, but also understanding of what Jesus has presented for us, Paul looks back in verse 24 to where he had left off in the 22nd verse. So I'll read again, and starting in the verse, 22nd verse. Even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And then verse 24, being justified. Who's justified? The all who believe. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is the grace gift that God has given to us. There is something lavish about it. Because we know that we did nothing to earn this. We're not only lawbreakers. Given the opportunity to be perfect again, we would transgress the law again. God had to send His Son to be the faithful one because we are so faithless. The faithfulness of God is amazing to consider. The patience of God is incredible to consider. This love that God has given to us is freely given. It is extravagant in its essence. It is freely bestowed not only on those who love God, but the reality is, is who is it bestowed upon? Those who hate God. There is none of you in this room, if you today love Jesus, can say, I love Jesus from the day I was born. It's not true. We were all enemies of God. We loved our sin. And the reality is, is that this is the redemption that Christ has bought us. We were all together hopeless. And the picture we should have is that of a slave market. And in that slave market, we were beholden to Satan. We were paying our wages, which were the wages of sin. And we could never fully satisfy our captor. Jesus saying this, came down and he paid the only price that was the accurate one for that debt to be paid. And he didn't pay it to Satan, he paid it to his father. See, God saw the obligation that sin had brought and he knew, not after the fall, before the fall, he knew that he was going to send his son to stand in our place, to pay this price, to redeem us so that we who believe would be justified by this extravagant gift. The faithfulness of Christ has purchased that for us. Now this is what Christ has done to uphold and to display to us the righteousness of God. But now consider with me what the Father has done. We see in verses 25 and 26 the forbearance of the Father. Look with me at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. We turn now and we see how the Father has acted in order to demonstrate His righteousness. While Jesus has proven His righteousness through faithfulness, we see the Father show His faith, His demonstrate his righteousness through his forbearance. 
And that's an amazing thing to consider. God is impatient with you. Don't let that escape your, your mind. You know, I think that we are n- certainly, I am not long suffering. When it comes to things not going the way we would like, we don't have a, a, a love that covers a multitude of sins that's deep. We don't have a deep reservoir of patience or forbearance. Now, that in comparison to God's is amazing. See, when God wanted to display to Moses his glory, you, you may re- remember this in, in Exodus 34, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. When Moses was shown the glory of God, this is what God did. He took Moses and he hid him in the cleft of a rock and he said he would let his hind parts go before him. But as he did, as he turned before him and his glory moved in front of Moses, he said this, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And there is the entire explanation of God's forbearance. God is not looking to unnecessarily see any die. I love when we were reading through the the Bible in a year. I I wonder, did you notice when we get to uh, Ezekiel 38 when God exclaims, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in seeing any go into darkness. And even in Romans chapter 2, Paul lets us know some piece of this reasoning for God's forbearance. He has been patient and shown us kindness. He has overlooked many sins so that some might repent. He has done this in order to demonstrate His righteousness. And, And this is what's so amazing. Not only about the patience of God, but the purpose of God in His forbearance. God has knowingly seen sinners sin and looked past it. And not without any end. For, as he says in Exodus, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And yet, what is his motivating factor? What is his driving desire? What is the the object of his heart? It is to see sinners saved to show compassion, to show His loving kindness, to be gracious and to bring those who are far off near. It's always been this way. So God has not looked past our sins in indifference. You know, that's what we do. When we see sin and we see it and we do nothing, you know what that is? That is failing to be angry without sin. That indifference, that aloofness, that is not meekness. That is not yielded to the things that grieve God. That is a wrong, that is a failure to understand the righteous use of anger. Now, we understand anger. I'm sure many of you do. But far too often, the anger that we experience is for ourselves. But let me ask you when is the last time you saw unrighteousness, even something displayed for the sake of entertainment, and you were indignant? 
because of what it meant for the sake of the holiness of God. God is a righteous judge. He has indignation every day. If man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow, and he has made it ready. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ, I certainly would tell you, reflect on that verse. You may be taking for granted the forbearance of God, the fact that God has given you life, that He's given you breath, that He's given you abilities, that He's given you gifts, and every day that you live where you're not giving Him the praise and the glory for that, God is wetting His sword if you do not repent. God gave the law not to save sinners, but to reveal to sinners how seriously He takes sin. To demonstrate to us the profound sinfulness of sin. One commentator says this, There would be a blot on God's government, not because it was so severe, but because it was so forbearing, unless His justice was vindicated. And the fatal consequences of sin show in the sacrifice of Christ. God could not have shown himself just in his in view either of age-long forbearance or of now justifying the sinner unless the cross had shown that he was not morally indulgent towards sin. So this is the way that God has chosen to demonstrate his righteousness. He has been forbearing with sin. In the same way that Jesus has been faithful, both of these parts of the Trinity and the the wisdom of God were looking toward the cross. That is the reason God forbears with sinners. Because at the cross, the faithfulness of Christ's execution would be the thing that upholds His justice and His justness. I want to take a moment just to make sure you're aware of this because sometimes we, we forget this. Sin was not a surprise to God. The fall of Adam and the fall of Satan was no surprise to God. And what's profound about the truth of the gospel and the consistent, slow unveiling of God through the law and the prophets and His Word is that God has chosen to use the very instrument, sin, which not only separated us from Him, but in the mind of Satan, I'm sure he hoped would upset the entirety of God's design and creating. So the reality is is that God was not surprised by our sin or Satan's rebellion. But in a time before the beginning of time, before we were made, before there was a heavens or an earth, God was in Himself self-sufficient, fully satisfied, and fully glorious And for the sake of His desire to demonstrate His manifestive glory, He created. 
And in this creation, of all the ways that he could have demonstrated to that creation, not only his glory and righteousness, but foremost, his love. And not necessarily just the love that he has for us, but the love he has for his own glory, he chose the cross. And for this reason, Jesus was publicly displayed as a propitiation in blood. God ensured that Christ was put forward in order that all would see his sacrifice. He did it in a way that no one could deny it. In fact, there was a placard put over his head, Behold the King of the Jews. And of all the ways that Jesus could have died, God chose the most heinous form of, ex- of execution and the most public of ways. Even today, when we question whether it's right to put to death a man, we try to ensure that that source of death is humane. That was not the cross. The cross was an implement of torture and humiliation intended to cause all who saw it to fall in obedience to Rome. So God chose the cross to most fully demonstrate His righteousness. Now this word that we have, propitiation, is used several times in the New Testament. We'll find it in 1 John and uh, chapter 2 and chapter 4. But really, the only other place where the exact translation for propitiate is used is, is found in Hebrews 9. So I'd ask you to turn there and look with me. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which was called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which there was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail." The word that Paul uses here in Romans 3 to describe the propitiation of Christ is the same one the author of Hebrews uses to describe the mercy seat. Now you probably remember that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take the offering and he would sprinkle the blood of that offering on the mercy seat. And this was again a way of atoning for the sins of the people. But you know the reality is is that that would never be enough. Because it had to be done again and again and again. So how fitting is it now to see that Jesus, our propitiation, is also the mercy seat and that He is also the perfect sacrifice. He's the one that needed to have the blood sprinkled on, and He had to be the sacrifice for the blood to be the right blood to satisfy God. So Jesus now as our mediator stands between us and the righteousness of the law. And by the shedding of His own blood, He has once and for all removed the stain of our sin. Previously, this had to be done over and over as Hebrews 10.14 lets us know, but now, by one offering, He, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You know, all sanctified means is to be set apart and to be holy. So the faith that we have is 
upon the faithfulness of Christ and the work that Christ was doing and His faithfulness and the work that God was doing and His forbearance was all pointing to this picture that had been laid out for Israel to practice again and again and again and again with a flow of blood that would never cease until Christ came. And you recall that on the day when Jesus was raised from the dead that the the Holy of Holies, the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies in the holiest place was torn in two from the top to the bottom showing it was from God. And within a generation of the death of Jesus, the temple itself would be destroyed. And the Day of Atonement that's practiced to this day happens every year, but there can be no shedding of blood because there is no way to make an offering and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Because Jesus is He's finished that work. It's done in Him. This is what the forbearance of God has brought us. And this is why God has done this. And this is my favorite part. Look at verse 26. God has done this for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, if it was you or I, we might have thought, God, why couldn't you just say to Adam, it's okay, it was just a mistake. Let's start over. Let's get a mulligan. But that's not what he did. See, if God had done that, you know what that that would have done? It would have proven that he was not just. It would have undermined his justice. It would have made him just like a man. He would have ceased to have been God. And that's what's so wonderful about the Gospel. Because as we look at it, we see the interruption of God in human history. As we are on this road of depravity that's going to hell, God interrupts us. And He shows us the fullness of His glory. God has jealously been guarding this righteousness so that at the propitiation of Christ, at His shedding of His own blood, all of the world would see publicly the fullness of what God had accomplished. They would see the patience of God and understand God was patient with me, not so that I would go on sinning. He was patient with me so that I would see how righteous He is. He could have done away with sin in another way, more simply perhaps. But that's not the way He chose to do it. See, God chose to use your sin and my sin to demonstrate to us and all the world that He is just. And for all those who do not believe They will still taste His sword. They will still see His justice. But today, if you're here, I implore you to know this. Jesus has fully satisfied the wrath of God. There is absolutely no reason for anyone hearing this to go to hell and to experience the fullness of God's wrath because Jesus has paid it all on His cross. To Him we owe all. He's removed our stain of sin. And in doing this, He has perfectly 
demonstrated that he is both just and the justifier. God loves his glory and to uphold his glory he has chosen to justify sinners so that they would see he is just. That's amazing. That's amazing. The gospel is the vindication of God. The gospel is the display of God's glory. And the ultimate purpose of the gospel is so that you and I would see his righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, The cross is the vindication of God. The cross is the vindication of the character of God. The cross not only shows the love of God more gloriously than anything else, it shows His righteousness, His justice, His holiness, and all the glory of His eternal attributes. There, they are all shining together. Jesus was given over because of our transgression but raised for our justification. This is the salvation that the saints of old longed for and looked to and hoped for and realized in Christ. It's how Adam was saved. It's how David was saved. It's how Moses and Abraham were saved. It wasn't through law-keeping. It was through the propitiating sacrifice of Christ. It's how you you will be saved. It's how all will be saved until the day when Jesus comes again. The wisdom of God, not only has He demonstrated His righteousness to us, but He has also subjected us to the futility of time as we long and await His return. It's my prayer this morning that you would turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who has fully and faithfully paid the price Because the days of God's patience will come to an end. And you alone will be standing before His judgment seat with no mediator between God and man unless you repent. Let's pray. Father, this passage is just so tremendous. I pray that there would be none of us that have heard it this morning that have failed to understand it. Pray, Lord, that you would grant insight to those who have heard it and perhaps are coming out of a place of darkness and maybe this is the first time they have heard something about the light that is available in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would save today. And Father, for any of us who are walking in the arrogance of spiritual pride, I pray that we would be taken off that perch and remember there's nothing that we have done. Jesus was faithful. We are faithless. Jesus is the one who has upheld God's righteousness. May we now, as your church, be what we are called to be, the demonstration of the righteousness of God through the transformation of a people who are sick and depraved, becoming the very children of God.